You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on December 10th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. Uh, reminder that I'm happy to try to answer any questions you throw at me about science, technology, math, other kinds of things, uh, whatever I know about, I'm happy to talk about. Um, let's see. We have a few questions saved up here, and I'm hoping we'll get uh, more coming in. So I have a question here from Bio. Um, asking, what's the difference between astroparticle physics and astrophysics, which is more interesting in my opinion? All right, let's talk about this. So, you know, astronomy is kind of the study of, well, literally, I guess in Greek, it would mean the, the lore of the stars, so to speak. But um, astronomy tends to be things like what stars are where in the sky, what can you see through a telescope, those kinds of things, more kind of the what's out there in the universe. Astrophysics is more about how do the stars actually work, what's the physics behind how the stars work, not so much, oh, there's Betelgeuse, there's Altair, there's this star, there's that star, but how does a red giant star work, how does a, a white dwarf star work, those kinds of things generically about stars, not that particular name of a star. Um, you can talk about that in a little bit more detail. Astroparticle physics is a, quotes newer field. It seems newer to me because I was involved with it right when it was starting in the late 1970s. So it's not quite so new anymore. But um, it has to do with understanding the relationship between particle physics, the study of things like electrons and quarks and those kinds of things, and the study of, of things on, an, on a, an astronomical scale, and particularly studying those kinds of things in terms of what happened in the early universe. Let's talk a little bit about these different pieces. So astronomy. Well, the, the question of sort of what stars are there where, um, that's a question that uh, people have been interested in for a long time. You know, there are some number of hundreds of stars, depending on where you live and how bright the sky is. There are some number of hundreds of stars you can see with the naked eye. There are, in our galaxies, there are about 100 billion stars. There are about 100 billion galaxies in our universe. And uh, the, there's sort of a question of where are all those things? And people, people wonder a lot, questions like, are the stars uniformly distributed in the sky? Or are they clumped up? We know they're clumped into galaxies. Even within galaxies, there are clumps of stars. And there's sort of a question, if, if you are uh, on a particular star, what is the likelihood that there will be a star within some number of light years of you? So for example, for us, we have the sun, that's our, our friendly local star. And then the next nearest star is about four light years away. That means that it takes light four years to travel from that star to us. In the, in the way that relativity works, if you're the photon of light, no time will have elapsed between the time when you were emitted on that star and the time when you're received by us. That's because of time dilation 
uh, at the speed of light, there's infinite time dilation. So as far as the photon is concerned, it was emitted and then it was and then it was received by us. But as far as we're concerned, uh, as as sort of things not traveling at the speed of light, it would take us. It would be a a four year journey, even if we were going at the speed of light to to reach the nearest star. Uh, that was a bit confusing, but the the point I'm making is that as a if 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 we look at when was the light emitted and when was the light received, but we are stationary, then we can say it was emitted four years ago. It's received now. Um, if we were actually traveling at the speed of light, the story would be different. But in any case, the the nearest star other than the sun, Alpha Centauri, a triple star that's uh, about four point three light years away, and then. There's, as you look at other stars, uh, there's a whole bunch of stars nearby. I think the next one is Barnard's star, about six light years away. And you can just ask, what's the, what's the chance to find a star uh, that is a certain distance away from, from the sun? Actually, we, we, a lot of stars, the sun is a fairly big star, and there are a lot of fairly dim stars out there. So even stars that are quite close to us, we may not know that they're there yet um, because they're, they're too dim to see. But this question about how many stars are there at a certain distance away from us uh, is an interesting question. And there tends to be sort of a universal law that is only partly understood. It's a power law that determines uh, sort of the, the how many stars you typically find a certain distance away from a given star. And, and the stars tend to be clumped as a result of gravity. They're clumped in a large scale in, in, in galaxies, but they're even clumped on a smaller scale. Um, but that's sort of the, the subject of astronomy is things like where are those stars and how are the stars moving around and so on, not so much the physics of what causes the clumping, what causes the motion and so on. A, a big sort of story of astrophysics is things like how do stars work um, and stars go through this, uh, there's a so-called main sequence stars of which our sun is an example. Um, there's a, a sequence of different stages that stars go through. I don't actually know what the letters come from, but it's O B A, uh, O B A F G. Uh, I forget what's our G is what uh, is the stage our sun is at, um, and uh, th there's a what. It's a question of what, um, how, what kind of nuclear reactions are happening in the star. And at some point, it will have used up all the fuel of a certain kind, all the kinds of atoms of a certain kind will kind of have to go on and, and start using heavier atoms and so on. And that, that determines the sort of sequencing of stars. But the whole theory of how stars work and, uh, you know, how hot is it in the middle of the sun, maybe 10 million degrees centigrade, um, those kinds of things, that's, that's a big subject of astrophysics. And a lot of other questions about how stars form, um, how... Uh, uh, the, 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 the application of physics to things that um, about how astronomical sized objects work. Then sort of another big field is cosmology. And cosmology is the story of kind of how things work at the scale of the whole universe. Things like what was the universe like when it was very young, 14.6 billion years ago? It was, a, it was very small and very hot. That was the Big Bang. Uh, when the universe started expanding uh, as it has continued to expand up until now. Um, and uh, cosmology is kind of the study of the very large scale structure of the universe, not uh, really paying too much attention to the individual galaxies, individual stars, 
but just asking what's the structure of the whole universe? What's the rate of expansion of the whole universe? What's the, uh, what characteristics does the universe have? Kind of a, a corner case of cosmology is things about what happened in the very early universe. And that's kind of a place where, in a sense, the, um, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the questions of astrophysics and cosmology and astroparticle physics all, in a sense, intersect. What happened in the very early universe? Well, one thing we know for sure is the very early universe was, was small and hot compared to our current universe. Um, we, uh, uh, in fact, probably the, at the very, very beginning of the universe, the universe was sort of infinite, infinitely small and, in a sense, infinitely hot. In our current theory of physics that we've been working on recently, uh, something very bizarre is the case about the early universe. Whereas in our current universe, space has three dimensions, you know, you can move in, in three distinct directions. We think that the very early universe was probably infinite dimensional. And um, as gradually as the universe kind of expanded, it became lower and lower dimensional until eventually we get our current three-dimensional experience of, of the universe. But what happened in the very early universe was that lots of, right, right now in the universe, most of the universe is hydrogen, protons and electrons uh, making up hydrogen atoms. That's what most of the universe is today. When the universe was hot enough, the protons and the electrons weren't bound together in hydrogen atoms. They were free floating like they would be in fire, they're in a plasma. Um, and so there were just these particles, these protons and electrons bouncing around. Um, there was a time about, uh, when was it? About 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe when things had cooled down to the point where actual hydrogen atoms could form. That's an important moment in the history of the universe because it's when the universe became transparent to light. Before that time, it was more like a plasma-like fire that you can't kind of see through. After that time, it became transparent. And that means that light that started at that time can still can make it through the universe. If it, was, if it was emitted at a time when the universe had become transparent, the light just keeps, keeps moving. If it was emitted at a time before the universe became transparent, the light sort of doesn't get out and it, it just uh, it, uh, it, it, won't, we won't, it won't be directly visible by us. But so what happened in the, in the earlier and earlier universe, things were hotter and hotter. And that means there's more and more energy. The particles there have more and more energy. Temperature is, is, uh, determines the kinetic energy, essentially the speed of, of, of particles um, running around. And uh, at, um, as we go back earlier and earlier in the universe, we get to the time when it was a, a billion degrees centigrade and a trillion degrees centigrade and so on. Okay, so one strange thing happens when things are really, really hot, which is that you start making particle-antiparticle pairs. So what happens is, in so electrons have a certain mass, uh, positrons, anti-electrons have a certain mass equal to the mass of the electron. If you can sort of pump in enough energy to make up the mass of an electron as a, and a positron in the standard units of particle physics, it's about one MeV, one million electron volts. If you have that amount of energy, then that energy can be converted into the masses of an electron and a positron. And so what will happen is the electron and positron will, uh, they, they'll, you'll be able to produce those two particles. You might have a photon with that amount of energy 
and the photon can essentially split into an electron and a positron. This is sort of a, a fundamental thing in particle physics and in quantum field theory, this idea that you can have a, a particle um, and it, it um, uh, the, the just like, okay, so, so when it comes to uh, something like electric forces between particles, charged particles have electric forces between them. Those electric forces are understood in quantum field theory as due to the exchange of photons. So an electron is going along and it emits a so-called virtual photon, which is absorbed by another electron, for example. And the momentum that's transferred by that virtual photon is what kind of pushes, what causes one electron to be pushing another electron. So to exert a force, so to give you the kind of electrical force between two electrons. It turns out that sort of same phenomenon, you can kind of turn it around and say, actually, a photon just coming along with enough energy can produce and can that that virtual photon can turn into an electron positron pair um and uh, the um uh let's see the, the 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 basic phenomenon that happens is when you have essentially when you have enough energy to make up the the masses of the particles you will be able to turn energy into particle-antiparticle pairs. And so in the sufficiently early universe, when it was hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, um, you can produce particle-antiparticle pairs of all kinds of particles. So first you're producing electron-positron pairs, then you might have, I don't know, maybe proton-antiproton pairs, probably you wouldn't actually get those, you'd get instead quark-antiquark pairs, those are the things inside protons, and you would get, um, oh, I don't know, things like uh, all the different sort of zoo of particles, Higgs particles, all kinds of different kinds of things produced in the early universe. The early universe is sort of a generator of the complete zoo of possible particles. And that's why sort of particle physics enmeshes with, uh, that's one of the reasons why particle physics enmeshes with astrophysics is because in the sufficiently early universe, you get sort of the complete spectrum, the complete zoo of possible particles produced and the effects of those particles and their various kinds of interactions can have an effect on, on the structure of the universe. Another place where astroparticle physics sort of uh, shows up is in the question of, there are sort of mysteries in astrophysics. The kind of one of the bigger ones is this question of dark matter. So, the, the universe has a certain amount of mass in it that we can tell is there because it's stars and we can see the stars shine and we can kind of guess how much mass there is because we know how much mass, how, how much mass there is in a star that shines with a certain brightness and so on. So we can estimate how much mass there is in like a galaxy, for example. Well, then we can look at how does the galaxy actually behave in terms of its rotation and things like that how much mass does it behave as if it has in it based on the force of gravity that seems to be being exerted by one part of the galaxy on other parts of the galaxy. And unfortunately, there's a big mismatch between those things. It seems like there's a lot more mass in galaxies than mass that we can account for on the basis of looking at stars based on their brightness and so on. And so that's led to this idea of dark matter where the notion is that there's something there that isn't bright, isn't shining, isn't like a star that we can kind of uh, see and, and measure, so to speak, but it still has a gravitational effect. And so there's been sort of a big 
chased on for the last, I don't know, 25 years or more, a little bit more than that perhaps now, uh, for what is that dark matter? And there are some weird cases where there, for example, are colliding galaxies, and you sort of see this, this place in the middle where you don't see anything, but it clearly has a gravitational effect. So there's clearly some kind of thing that is, uh, has gravitational effect, but is not like a star. So what is it? You know, is it tiny black holes? Is it some new kind of particle? Nobody knows what it is. And there are a variety of candidates. Some of them are just sort of individual particles. Some of them are much bigger objects, like uh, uh, things, things like tiny black holes, tiny stars, all kinds of which, which are not uh, luminous and so on, uh, other kinds of things. So kind of the hunt is on for what can dark matter be. And dark matter could be particles that are uh, very much like the particles we already know, except just not particles that interact very much. They wouldn't have electric charges, things like that. They might be particles very different from the ones we already know. They might be particles that are trillions of times less massive than the ones we already know. That's something that actually our theory of physics suggests might, might be going on. Um, but uh, so that's a place where people are interested in trying to hunt for those kinds of particles. The particles must interact very weakly with ordinary matter. And so there are all kinds of elaborate experiments trying to detect the presence of kind of very weakly interacting particles that might be part of this kind of dark matter thing. And so that's another sort of big piece of the astroparticle physics story. So if you look at these different areas, you know, in astrophysics as such, some of the questions that have been sort of long around there are things like, uh, how do stars shine? That's kind of known. How do stars form? There's a decent amount known about that. How do stars explode in supernovas? There's, again, a decent amount known about that. Um, uh, the, many of the kind of most obvious questions in astrophysics are somewhat under control, I would say, at this point. But when it comes to these questions about dark matter and so on, which more relates to particle physics, there's sort of a great big, we don't know what's going on type sign there. And uh, so that's, that's sort of a, a feature of that field. Let's see. Um, let's see. Well, we got another question here about why do doctors say that no vaccination can be 100% effective? Okay, very different area of science. Um, well, gosh. Uh, well, how do vaccines work? How does the immune system work? So we are continually getting bombarded by all kinds of viruses and bacteria and other things that um, would harm us if they started reproducing inside us and so on. And so we have evolved, we being mammals, humans, etc., have evolved a couple of big mechanisms to kind of keep the intruders out. And those two mechanisms are usually called the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system also exists in lower animals. The adaptive immune system is kind of a special for mammals and so on. Um, the, uh, the innate immune system, basically what it does is it, it tries to figure out, is there some chemical feature essentially of um, the, the things that are likely to be intruders that's different from things that are likely to be part of us. And um, what tends to happen is that it 
has in in kind of a, you know in one's nose and other places where sort of one's continually ingesting stuff from the outside there's kind of cells and a system that are intended to kind of uh, keep out the intruders by noticing that they are intruders from various kinds of chemical properties of those um, of those things and there are a variety of chemical properties that are used. I think more get discovered every year of different kinds of tricks that the innate immune system uses to try and recognize uh, kind of that's, that's something that we want to keep out and where it wants to um, uh, uh, kill off that cell, kill off that bacterium, whatever it is, to, to keep it out of, out of the system. Um, and, and even once it is in... Uh, let's see if I can remember how this works. The um, uh, there are there are also yeah the innate immune system also works I think internally um, in um, uh, but again with this idea that it's a sort of fixed set a fixed repertoire of kind of um, things that one knows are bad. It's kind of like in in computer security if you have a firewall there are certain patterns that you say, if you see a packet that looks like this, it's definitely bad, just throw it out. So the more sophisticated immune system is the adaptive immune system, which is intended to deal with antigens that aren't necessarily of a kind that one's ever seen before, and a way to kind of get those to, to um, notice and get rid of those antigens. Antigen means a, a bad thing that is sort of a foreign a foreign thing from the outside. So the, the big feature, so the things one's interested in dealing with are they're all uh, things that are, that they're all biological things made of proteins uh, that have been specified by, by, um, uh, by DNA and RNA and so on, but they're all in the end, it's protein molecules, and these protein molecules are all different shapes and so on. And so sort of the, the big idea of the adaptive immune system is know the set of shapes of molecules that correspond, or pieces of molecules that correspond to things that are part of us and recognize when it's a shape that isn't a shape that is something that is something that's part of you, when it's a foreign uh, sort of alien shape then recognize that and, and try and kill it off or get rid of it. So how does that, how does that work? Well, the main idea is, is the following. It's called the clonal selection theory of the immune system. And it seems to be what's happening. What happens is, okay, so the, the whole thing is a little complicated and I'm not sure I know all the details of it. I'm not sure all the details are really known yet. Um, but uh, the, in, well, let's talk about one of the ways that those shapes are recognized, which is with antibodies. Antibodies are little tiny, uh, fairly small um, molecules that whose job is to kind of paint the bad stuff. So antibodies try to attach themselves to, to protein that is sort of, uh, uh, or cells that have kind of uh, bad, protein associated with them that are non that are not things that we think are part of ourselves they're kind of they're kind of marking the things that are uh, are, are kind of a, a bad so 
when I say marking them, what happens is these little pieces of antibody, which are little immunoglobulin molecules, again, pieces of protein, they attach themselves to the surface of a cell that is supposed to be a, a bad cell, and they kind of mark that cell as bad, and then other parts of the immune system notice that and come and, and, uh, and kill that cell. So the question is, how does the antibody know what to mark and what not to mark? So the idea is the following. They're about, they're a, the, the way the immune, the, the little Y-shaped molecules, and those molecules that make up the, the antibodies, they have this, these, these many different possible structures. They, have, they come from essentially genetic sequences that cause them to be able to make um, a, a collection of different possible uh, proteins are made from these sequences of amino acids, um, 20 different possible amino acids, and, and each protein is just specified by some, some different sequence of essentially letters that correspond to these different amino acids. And so in, in uh, antibodies, there are, there's, a, there's a region of the antibody where it has great diversity. You can, you can just have any sequence of, of within, within certain constraints, any sequence of letters can be there and different sequences of letters will make different shapes. And so what happens is how many different shapes can you make? Well, in, in our antibodies, we can make about hundred billion different shapes. And um, uh, the, is that, no, maybe it's a, more like 10 billion different shapes. So, all the time, we are producing antibodies with randomly, with each antibody we produce has one of these 10 billion different possible shapes. And, and all the time, there are, there are billions of antibodies circulating in our blood, and they will randomly have picked one shape or another. Okay, so then what happens? Well, what happens is that when there is an antigen where one of those shapes fits onto the antigen, then the, um, that antibody will bind to the antigen. And then a system, part of the immune system notices that, oh, that antibody bound to something, that must be an antibody that matters. And the immune system will just start producing more and more of that kind of antibody. That's what mounts an immune response is the recognition. And first of all, you're randomly picking antibodies, you're randomly generating antibodies. Then every so often, one of those antibodies will stick onto something. When it sticks, then the immune system knows, let's amplify, let's make more and more of that particular kind of antibody. Not all the other 10 billion antibodies, but that particular antibody. Just make more and more of that antibody. And that that kind of is the, is the mounting of the immune response. And then those antibodies will start sort of painting the other cells that are identified, the other uh, antigen, the other things that are identified as bad. And the, uh, the you know, T cells will come along and, and start um, uh, consuming those things and, uh, and so on. So that's, that's sort of the, the basic idea is you're, you're randomly selecting possible antibodies. Then the ones that, that turn out to stick are the ones that get amplified and that is what generates the immune response. Now, the big question is, why do the antibodies not start looking at random cells in your body and say, hey, that doesn't look like a good cell, I'm going to go attack that? Well, the reason they don't is that the antibodies and the, and the immune system is kind of trained for each of us early in our lives to know what's self and what's not self. And so there's a thing called the thymus gland sits somewhere in one's, in one's chest. 
that um, is a place where there is sort of training going on in early life of this is a this is a protein that is a self protein and it's not something for which you should mount an immune response and generate antibodies and anything that you see there is something that you you kind of know is is something that is gen is part of your of, of you and so antibodies ignore that thing and only if you see something that isn't part of you should you go and attack it and go through this whole you know uh, attach yourself get other antibodies like you made all those kinds of things now it doesn't always work perfectly and that's what causes autoimmune diseases is when you don't correctly identify which um which thing is a is a is a piece of self and which thing is a foreign intruder so to speak i'm i'm simplifying a lot in in what i'm describing i'm talking only about antibodies there's a whole separate system to do with t cells um t cells are are complete white blood cells that have a thing called the t cell receptor which is something a little bit like the way antibodies work except that the t cell receptor will directly it will bind to a cell and t cells will more directly be the things responsible for killing cells and so on antibodies are just painting cells so other t cells can come along and um, uh, and actually do the do the dirty work of killing off the cell or killing off the the bacterium or killing off the 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 cell that's inside us that's been infected by a, by a virus by the way there's always the question how do you know if a cell has been infected well there's another whole mechanism biology is full of these complicated mechanisms there's another whole mechanism that essentially a cell is continually exposing pieces of the protein that's inside the cell there's kind of a conveyor belt molecular conveyor belt that's taking pieces of that protein up to the cell surface so that it exposes them on the cell surface in a particular place on the cell surface um in in um particular structure on the cell surface and many copies of it on a, on the surface of a particular cell and that's kind of like exposing this is what i'm like inside the cell says and that allows the immune system to, to notice whether that is a is a cell that has good stuff inside or bad stuff inside so that's and that's that's kind of how when a virus infects a cell the virus is is doing its work um in uh, inside the cell but what's happening is the proteins it's making are getting transported in pieces up to the cell surface and getting recognized um there by by antibodies and t cells and so on okay so that's very rough indication of how the immune system works so one question would be uh if you get sick with something that means that you've got some foreign protein some antigen that's come in you've mounted this immune response you've generated lots of antibodies for that thing and that's all good you've you've successfully you know you've rebuffed the intruders you've you've killed off all those cells that's great you're better now what well the immune system has a memory if you ever got sick it sort of remembers what you got sick with and if it ever sees that kind of antigen again it's going to spring into action much more quickly and be able to generate antibodies more quickly of that particular type and uh, or and, and be able to respond and rebuff the um the the disease even before it starts to uh to sort of make you really sick i mean what one thing to say is when you get a virus bacteria whatever you know you'll typically be getting a very small number 
I don't know how many, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of like virus particles in your nose or something like this. But to actually make you sick, it requires many more copies of the virus. And so what will happen to actually make you sort of clinically visibly sick, it'll require many more copies of the virus. And what happens is viruses, they infect cells, they cause the cell to generate more virus, the cell eventually explodes, it spews virus all over the place, the little pieces of virus, that, the little viruses that get spread out, and they go infect other cells and so on. And that process takes over the course of, I don't know, days or whatever, or a day, um, that uh, uh, you're, you're making more and more cells be infected by the virus. And what's happening is uh, that that's, there's often a sort of doubling every so often of the number of infected cells. And the question is, the immune system is coming in and it's trying to attack what's happening. Um, if the immune system, if the amount of, if the immune system is kind of on alert, as that doubling starts to happen, the immune system will swing into action aggressively enough that it will basically cut off that doubling and you won't get sick. It won't get to the sort of runaway doubling that, um, uh, that generates enough virus or whatever to make you clinically sick. Um, but if the immune system is kind of not on alert, it will typically, it will often, or might, I, I wouldn't say typically, because I don't think we really know, um, it will, it, it might take it, it will tend to take it uh, too long to respond. And so it will already, there will already be too much virus in you, and it'll then be a much more difficult fight for the immune system to ramp up and start, start um, knocking out the virus and so on. So the question is, what causes the immune system to have sort of the memory of what it should be on alert to? And this is where things get a bit complicated because and a lot is not really known about this. People, there are a type of white blood cell called B cells, and there are things called memory B cells that people talk about, which are supposed to be kind of versions of B cells that were, uh, B cells, by the way, are what, what produce antibodies and different sort of when you are, uh, a, a, the, the details of a B cell will determine what kinds of antibodies it can produce. So if you have a B cell of that, that clone, that, um, uh, that particular type of B cell, and you have lots of that particular type of B cell, you'll be well enabled to produce that particular kind of antibody to attack that particular kind of antigen. But so a typical kind of theory is that there are memory B cells, there are B cells that kind of remember what antibodies they produce, and that over the course of, if we want to get sick with something, one of the theories has been that you get memory B cells that kind of hang around with the knowledge of, of uh, how to generate antibodies to the thing you got sick with, and they hang around forever, so the theory goes. And if ever they're called into action, uh, 10 years later, whenever, whenever it is, those B cells will spring into action and be able to produce antibodies. This theory is not completely convincing, I think, because the, the uh, experiments to find these things I don't think are very convincing. Um, this, that's my, my impression. And also, the, the typical lifetime of a white blood cell is like a month or so. And so what one would be claiming if one said, oh, there are these B cells and they last forever, it's like, well, most of these cells only last a month, but there are some that might last your whole life. And that seems rather implausible. I think generally one one has much better guess that that what's happening is more something where there is one of these B cells and then somehow it passes itself 
its information onto another B cell and keeps going from there and so on. And there are mechanisms that could happen through sort of lineages of cells. There's a different theory actually that was uh, come up with, I guess, in the 1970s. Um, that was the so-called network theory of the immune system, actually invented by the chap who invented monoclonal antibodies, which are an important uh, therapeutic tool, uh, the thing that's, for example, used for sort of early treatment of, of COVID is a monoclonal antibody. Mon monoclonal antibodies are just a, uh, monoclonal antibodies, it's, it's a method for producing just tons and tons of antibodies of a specific type. Actually, it makes use of a cell that would, would sometimes, if used in the wrong way, would be something which would produce kind of a, a blood cancer, but it's kind of hijacking the mechanism of that cell that would usually just produce more and more and more cells, hijacking it and using it to produce lots and lots of antibodies. And that's, that's a, a therapeutic method. But anyway, the, the chap who invented that, that method um, also came up with this um, theory of how the immune system works, which was some, uh, which is a little different from this idea of their memory B cells and they last forever. Um, more, it's a theory that you produce antibodies and you're producing antibodies. And then gradually, as you just produce more and more antibodies, once an antigen has showed up. But in order to stop you producing antibodies, the antibodies themselves become essentially antigen. And so then you end up producing anti-antibodies that are antibodies that attack antibodies, so to speak. And then what happens is there's this whole kind of dynamic equilibrium between antibodies and anti-antibodies and anti-anti-antibodies and so on. And so there's this whole sort of process of keeping the immune system in kind of dynamic equilibrium through having antibodies and anti-antibodies and so on. I believe that recently actually somebody found a, uh, usually the, the, the first level antibodies called AB1 antibodies, the second level called AB2 antibodies. I think somebody found an AB2 antibody for COVID, for example, which means that there are anti-antibodies being produced, um, which is kind of what this theory suggests should be there. But in any case, the, the, in that theory, what's happening is instead of having a particular cell that is sort of hanging around and able to sort of spring into action and produce uh, kind of um, or produce the antibodies you need. Instead, you have this kind of this whole cascade of different kinds of cells that are all kind of dynamically. The antibody is is causing one to have anti-antibodies. The anti-antibodies are then causing one to make antibodies again, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, a sort of dynamic collection of things. It's kind of analogous to you know, when, when you wonder how you remember things, one possibility is, and, and some of this happens, you know, you have a memory that was formed and, and sort of imprinted on some synapse in your brain 50 years ago, and that same synapse is still there. But the other possibility is that you, you recall that memory, and then you remember the recalling of the memory, rather than that you have that memory imprinted from the original time you received the memory. And that's kind of a, you know, this sort of cascade version of how you remember something is probably a little bit more like how the immune system works with this kind of dynamic sequence of, of remembering things. So then the question is, uh, what does the immune system, um, uh, how, how does, the, you know, that, that, that whole mechanism of the immune system is, um, uh, is something that um, 
has all kinds of features. I mean, one question is, for example, when you have, let's say, a virus that has a particular genome sequence, it's going to produce a particular protein, and that particular virus is going to be one to which you mount antibodies and so on. But then maybe the virus evolves slightly. Maybe it has a few changes to its genome. That's happened with COVID, for example. All these various variants of COVID are various changes. I mean, some of them, COVID is a, is a virus with about um, uh, uh, 29,000 base pairs. That's the length of its genome. And most of these variants have been like, I don't know, 10, 15 base pair changes out of that 29,000. I think this uh, Omicron variant is like 31 base pair changes. It's kind of mysterious how it got to be so many. I think that's a, it's an interesting scientific mystery right now. But anyway, it is, a, it is a slightly more distant variant. But once the question then is, you've got your immune system, it remembers the antibodies it was producing to the original virus. And the question then is, when a variant comes in, how much can it, rem can it mount a good antibody response to that variant? And of course, if you're only changing you know, 10, 30 base pairs out of 29,000, that means lots of the proteins that are produced, lots of the protein that's produced by that virus hasn't actually changed. And so if you mounted a successful immune response to the protein sort of first time around, it's it might be just the same protein second time around, no problem. If it's different, the, um, uh, the thing that um, uh, that can be more problematic and you, there's the question of, you know, do you manage to make antibodies that are close enough? What does close enough mean? Well, it probably means something about the shape of the molecule. Is the molecule shaped close enough that it kind of fits in and can bind to the, to the place it's supposed to bind? I think with the, with the COVID virus, there's the spike protein, which is a particular protein produced by that virus, that is um, the, the, the kind of the focus of both uh, kind of a lot of the immune response and um, it's also uh, a lot of the variation between these variants is concentrated in that area of the virus, I believe. So it isn't really the case that it's sort of randomly spread through the 29,000 base pairs. But in any case, the, the question is, you've got your immune system and it's going to mount an antibody response. And does it mount an antibody response as successfully to the changed if it mounted, if it, if it got the antibodies, if it understands what to do for the original virus, can it understand what to do for a variant virus? And the answer is, well, it seems to be able to do okay much of the time, but the mechanisms, it's, it's all, it, it, well, so one possibility is that in this, if it is the case that the immune system works by this kind of cascade of producing antibodies, anti-antibodies, and so on, every time you go to another level of that cascade, you're kind of expanding the region of, of sort of potential antibodies that you're making, because there's some errors in the way that that sort of recognition and sequencing happens. And so you're, you're ending up getting not just the precise same antibodies, but sort of a range of antibodies that are a little bit more distant from the original one. Now, if, that, if, the, if the thing gets too dilute, you just won't have enough antibodies to mount a good immune response to a particular new antigen. But on the other hand, if, you, if that sort of ball of antibodies, of, and I say ball, not in a physical sense, you can think of these different possible antibodies as being sort of arranged in a kind of shape space. So you can just say, I'm going to, uh, 
I'm going to use, if you were using modern machine learning, it might actually do it in, you know, be able to sort of give you the, the analog of that in a sort of feature space of saying there's, there's proteins that are this shape over in this corner, ones that are this shape over in this corner, there's ones that sort of intermediate shape between those two things. You can kind of lay out all the possible shapes of antibodies in this kind of shape space. And so what you're then asking for is things like uh, how far away, how far did you move in shape space between one variant of the one variant of the virus and another variant of the virus? And how far did the antibodies that you're producing kind of how how big a region in shape space do those antibodies cover? And so I think it's quite possibly the case that over the course of I don't know months, whatever it is, that that uh, if it, if it's true that there's this sort of cascade of antibodies and anti-antibodies and so on, that you're gradually making a slightly bigger ball of um, of kind of, uh, of of range of types of antibodies that you're making. Again, if it gets too dilute, it's not going to work well because then there just won't be enough antibodies to to uh, mount that strong response to a particular antigen. But on the other hand, if your ball of of in shape space is too small and some new antigen that might be a variant virus comes in and it's too far away from that ball, it still won't do you any good because you won't have any antibodies that are good matches for the thing that came in. So, okay, well, having, having described all those things, one can talk about things about vaccines, for example. I mean, vaccines are, uh, I'm, I'm kind of leaving out tons of, tons of stuff about how the immune system works and, and how um, uh, lymph nodes work and, and sort of the exposure of, of antigen to um, uh, of, of the of of actual immune system cells to antigen and things like this, but but we're leaving that out. But but so roughly, sort of the traditional approach to vaccines has been that you kind of provide something that is like the antigen that you want the immune system to produce antibodies to, and you then you kind of expose the immune system to that, and you say, look, here's a piece of antigen. Uh, go attack it, make things to attack it. And that's, um, uh, that's been something that um, uh, in the, but the, the problem is that you don't actually want to get sick. You don't want to have enough antigen that you get sick, but somehow you want to expose the immune system to, the, the, you want to get the immune system so excited about that antigen that it's going to generate tons of antibodies to it, even though you don't have all that much antigen. And so the traditional approach to vaccines has been to use these substances called adjuvants, which are basically things that, and there are a variety of different ones, and they're, they're sort of peculiar things that have been discovered over the years to, to work well for this, that just sort of tell the immune system, hey, there's something important going on here. Even though there's not a lot of antigen, just parade all these immune system cells past that small amount of antigen so that you pay attention to that antigen and generate a, a serious immune response to the, to the antigen. And so when people have had problems with, with vaccines, traditional vaccines, they've tended to be more often associated with the adjuvant substances than to the actual vaccine itself. And the, but those are the things that are like telling the immune system, you know, pay attention and actually generate lots of antibodies to this. So in the case of COVID, the, um, uh, the amazing thing that was done was to produce a vaccine in like one-fifth or one-tenth the time that anybody had ever produced a vaccine before. And the way that was done was using a new technology that's, that's different from the technologies that had been used in the past. And the, the, the primary idea, well, the, the, the diff, couple of different ideas, but, but the, um, uh, the mRNA vaccines 
um, their idea is just let's just essentially copy a little piece of what the virus is doing, not the whole virus. We don't want to copy the whole virus because then we'd have virus and that would be bad, but we'll just copy a piece of the virus. Like we'll copy the spike protein piece of the virus. It's not a complete virus that would be able to replicate and infect things and so on. It's just a piece of virus. And what we want to do is to get it so that that sort of the, the RNA code from that piece of the virus is being put into cells in us where it will be, well, it will produce protein and that protein will show up and be protein that's exposed on the cell surface and so on, and to which the immune system will mount an immune response and then and generate antibodies and so on, just the way, and it will, it will somehow generate enough of those antibodies that we will be able to, uh, if exposed to the actual antigen, we will be able to mount a good immune response. And so the, the particular way that, that these things work is using this, again, very impressive piece of technology, these lipid nanoparticles, which are, are sort of like versions of, of, of cells in organisms, except they're just uh, nanoparticles. They're little, little things made of lipids, um, uh, uh, you know, little tiny long molecules, uh, kind of um, rod-shaped molecules that are arranged in this kind of, um, that makes something like an artificial cell, an absolutely microscopic artificial cell. And that's used to enclose the RNA that is, um, uh, is actually going to be the thing that is going to specify the, the proteins you want to make. And the idea is to get those into enough cells in one's body and have them start producing the, um, uh, the kind of the, the, you know, the piece of the virus that will then be the thing that your immune system will respond to. And then your immune system will come and, and produce antibodies uh, probably produce T cell receptor T cells with the right T cell receptors to be able to mount an immune response. Now, the question of how all this really works and, and how long, you know, how how much uh, the that that particular, uh, you know, how how well some particular variant will be covered by this or that, that's very difficult to figure out. And generally, in medicine, the you know, one feature of medicine tends to be people don't make too many theories. They just say, let's do the experiment. Let's do some trial. Let's do a clinical trial where we get uh, one group of people who have this thing, one group of people who don't have this thing, compare the outcomes and so on, and just do sort of empirical science, just see what happens because, uh, well, there has been a certain amount of bad experience in the past um, of, of sort of, we've got a theory about how things will work, because often actual medicine and actual biology is just more complicated than people can possibly imagine. And so all these theories that say it should work like this, there's this particular you know, feature that should work like this. Well, actually there are all kinds of details that show up and maybe there's a detail that shows up for one type of person and not another type of person and so on. And in the end, it seemed like the only kind of reliable way of figuring out what to do is to do experiments. Now, sometimes like in the situation with the pandemic, it's tough to do some of those experiments, partly because the timescales are short, you know, there's ethical issues about doing some of the experiments and, uh, uh, but particularly timescales are short. And so you can't do this, you know, this traditional thing of, you know, take five or 10 years to 
ro roll out vaccines and see what effects they have and and then do do you know do more iterations and so on there hasn't been time to do that and so there's a little bit more tendency to to you know can one figure out what's going to happen i think what's tended to be the case is that people have believed that it's just impossible to have a theory so they don't even try to have a theory um and i think that's sort of a pity because i think that there's probably actually is a theory to be had and i think that um in uh, i've been interested in this myself of of whether it's possible to use even some uh, some techniques from that have come out of our physics project recently to be able to to understand and model things that might be happening in the immune system to give one more of an intuition for what might be going on you know what is really happening in the shape space how are, how is the effect over time of of sort of immune response being uh, uh, affected by the passage of time and and you know how is the immune response decaying how is it how is it actually just dying off or is it is it broadening and so on what happens if you uh, use vaccines that are that have a particular um, uh, that 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 have a particular protein, have a particular sequence associated with them, and you, and you keep kind of saying generate more immune response to this particular kind of sequence. How what effect does that have? Does that have a good effect, a bad effect on um, uh, on what's happening with uh, uh, with the ability to respond to, for example, variant viruses and so on? And so there there are lots of interesting questions there that uh, I, I think one doesn't really know the answer to, and um, it's uh, um, it's something where I, I kind of suspect that a better theory of immunology would make it much easier to reason about what's actually possible and what's not possible and what's what's a plausible effect and not a plausible effect. I mean, again, I, I say that that um, uh, you know theories in medicine and biology are always challenging because the thing is more complicated than you can imagine. But that's kind of a a beginning to this. I think. Um, I think the original question here was was why why are vaccines not 100% effective? You know, the the um, uh, there are so many different reasons. I mean, in in um, uh, from sort of did you know if you got a huge load of virus, it may be so much that it overwhelms the sort of even your immune system that's at the ready, or if you got if there was a a variant that you know it can have a different effect, or or if the um, uh, the, the the immune response that you mounted in, in response to a vaccine wasn't as large as one might have thought it would be for one reason or another. Um, that's another reason why you might not mount an adequate immune response. Um, it's also the case that that the precise details of what matters in the immune response, what actual piece of the immune system is the most effective at killing off a particular antigen, particularly is it a part of the, the, um, the, the antibody system, the B cells or the T cells? Um, these, are, these have different kinds of characteristics. I have to say, before this whole pandemic, you know, I was pretty decently aware of the whole antibody system. I was not very aware of the direct T cell uh, immunity. That the fact that you can have kind of uh, T cells with particular T cell receptors, I think there are even more possible T cell receptors, maybe a trillion different possible configurations of T cell receptors than there are antibodies. But I was much less aware of the the T cell response system um, than, uh, and so that's that's um, and it, you know it occupies a much smaller section of the immunology textbooks. But that may actually be the important part when it comes to uh, 
things like coronaviruses and so on. I don't think that's really known for sure. Um, so that's that's a, a small, um, uh, uh, a little bit of, of um, about um, immunology. I'm happy to try and answer more questions about that. Um, uh, there's a question from David here, quoting Wikipedia that some bowhead whales are estimated between, uh, to be uh, between 135 and 170 years old. Is this estimate correct? Can mammals live to be 200 years old? Well, I don't know the specifics of this. Uh, I think whales have the feature that they sort of, they grow a bit every season somehow. And anything that sort of grows every season, you can typically tell how old it is by just looking at how many growth spurts it's had. I mean, like for a tree, for example, there is a tree ring produced every growing season. And that's, you know, when you, when you sort of cut down the tree, you can see that, that cross section of tree rings and you can just count the tree rings. And that basically tells you how many years old the, the tree is. I, I vaguely remember that there's a similar mechanism for whales. So there may be, may be a good way to know after, at least after the whales died, um, uh, how old the whale had been. This question about how long organisms live, oh, interesting question. I mean, there are organisms that live uh, from you know, a day to thousands of years. Um, you know, there are trees, for example, uh, uh, redwood trees and things that are like thousand years old more than, or more than that. There are, um, and there are, uh, there are organisms that, uh, well, live shorter and longer amounts of time. Um, tends to be that, that larger organisms tend to live longer. I guess it takes them a while to grow to that size, among other things. Um, organisms that are, uh, are very tiny um, uh, uh, tend to have kind of faster, everything goes faster, metabolism goes faster, they live less time and so on. It's a good question, why do organisms live the time they live? What actually uh, limits the lifespan of organisms? The answer is nobody really completely knows. And it could be, if, if you look at the sort of long view of evolution, evolution has gradually tweaked the way we are, the way biological organisms are, and what tends to happen is the organisms that are more successful, there are more of them, they have more children, and those, and so there are more, and, and so then the traits that are associated with those organisms become the prevalent traits, they become the most common traits. And that's the, the Darwin's theory of, of evolution by natural selection, is that the things that are naturally, uh, the, the things where the organism is more successful can have more children, those are the things that become the dominant traits because those are the things for which they're just more organisms with, with those particular traits that are produced. So a question is, is living a certain amount of time, is it good for the species to live only a certain amount of time? You know, if it was the case that you had a species and uh, its members just lived for a really, really, really long time, uh, you might say, well, I don't know, maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea because you've got all these, all these eager young organisms that are coming out, but there's no food for them because all the food's been, been being eaten by these organisms that are a thousand years old, that are kind of old and crotchety and not doing anything very useful anymore. And uh, there's no food left for the young'uns who are the really energetic ones who are going to produce even more uh, organisms in the next generation. So in a sense then evolution 
natural selection, if there's a, a version of the species where the old ones stay around and a version of the species where the old ones don't stay around, the ones, the case where the old ones don't stay around may be more successful. And so it may be by natural selection, that may be the dominant form of the species. So it could be that pure evolution has caused it to be the case that species don't live, uh, that don't live that long and, and determined how long the species live. Now, you can still ask, okay, so species have a, um, a certain you know, expiration date. They have a certain time that they're supposed to live for. And it could be the case that you can still say, well, okay, that was the official expiration time, but uh, we're going to find some way to, to kind of uh, circumvent that expiration time and you know, find some medical intervention or whatever that will let the whale or the human or whatever live much longer than their evolutionarily uh, determined expiration time might be. Now, of course, the next question is, what is the mechanism? Even if evolution was determining the expiration time, how does it actually do it? You know, what, what is it that, that kind of happens over the course of whatever it is for humans, you know, 80, 100 years, whatever it is? Um, what, what happens to, to cause that sort of, uh, uh, the, you know, to cause the degradation that eventually causes the organism to die? And the answer is people don't completely know. There are various effects that go on. Um, there are uh, a few where there's, well, there are things that, that happen in the, every time you, as you, you make new copies of cells, the, the cells you have, I don't know, your skin cells turn over very rapidly. Um, other cells in your body turn over less rapidly, but gradually over time, every cell in your body has been replaced by a, a new youthful version of that cell. And every time that replication happens, it requires sort of rereading your DNA. And every time you read it, there are some changes to the DNA, particularly the ends of the DNA, the telomeres at the ends of the DNA tend to get a little bit shorter. They usually start off with maybe 50 telomeres at each end. And, and maybe every time you read it, it gets shorter by one, maybe. There are also enzymes that will, uh, 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 chemicals that will add telomeres to the end. So it's not quite correct to say every time it's copied, there's, there's one less. But so one thing that might happen as you age is you're having to produce more and more and more copies of cells. And every time you make a copy, it's slightly degraded. It could be slightly degraded because of these telomeres. It could be slightly degraded because of errors in the DNA replication. Um, and that would be one reason why gradually over time, the errors would build up and something a bit like that is probably happening with, with uh, the generation of cancer and so on, is some um, uh, sort of the replication errors build up and eventually they go off into a place where, where the cells start behaving in very much the wrong way. So that's one possible mechanism is genetic damage. Another possible mechanism is um, uh, oxidative stress and oxidative damage. Um, and that's, that's just sort of a general, I, I, quite, almost quite literally burning up of components of cells that cause them to be uh, kind of less um, less flexible and less uh, and less effective than they were before, um, and there are various of these molecular scale mechanisms that seem to exist for aging, but nobody really knows exactly what the uh, uh, you know, what the most significant are, and so on. And people are always coming up with um, you know eat more of this. Uh, do less of that, um, you know, this will uh, slow down the aging clock.
I mean, unfortunately, some of the things that people say, like like one that was quite popular for a while, was just eat less. You know, have a caloric restriction. Just eat fewer calories. Um, I think the you can end up with a situation where yes, it slows down the aging clock, but it slows down the whole clock as well. So it's kind of like I'm going very very slowly. And yeah, you know the the um uh you know in in it, you might live longer, but you'll live slower, so to speak, as well. So that's not necessarily a win. But so the question of of what um what mechanisms there are, and and what even the 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 absolute upper limits to um uh are to uh, to lifespans is really not known. And my guess is that eventually it will be figured out how to essentially get. See, see, the thing is, every time we get to a new generation, every time we, you know, the we the the children get made, so to speak, the children start from from zero again, and they successfully make all those wonderful, nice, youthful cells that old old fogies like me don't have anymore, so to speak. And so clearly, there is a mechanism to take cells that sort of come from me and make them kind of youthful again, because that's what happens in the next generation. And the question is, can one sort of plug into that to, to sort of uh, extend a single organism's kind of lifespan, for example, and one doesn't know the answer to that yet. I mean, there's, as uh, if you look at the practicalities of, of for example, for humans, the, um, in places like the US, mostly the, the life expectancy, the, 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 the typical, number of years that somebody will live uh, starting from when, if, if they're alive when they're born, if you look when they're born, you say, what's the average number of years the person will, will live? Maybe it's 81 years. I don't know what it is or something in the US now. Um, but that, that number has been going up by about a third of a year per year for quite a long time, mostly as a result of specific uh, things, avoiding specific kinds of diseases, most commonly heart diseases, um, in, in, the, in, in what's happened over the last few decades or so. Um, but, but gradually, you know, there are all kinds of different things that go wrong. And one of the things is, can you knock off, okay, we understand how to avoid this kind of thing going wrong. We understand how to avoid this kind of thing going wrong. Um, eventually, more and more and more things go wrong. But if you, can, if you can kind of knock off the big ones, then you extend that life expectancy. Um, but how far that will go is... is um, uh, is not clear. I mean, the longest people have been known to live is around 125 years, um, and uh, that um, uh, and that. Um, but I'm sure that that will um, um, in, increase um, over time. Although, and uh, you know, it's always a question of of um, how much how much will be biology and how much will be technology. How much of it will be sort of fix yourself and how much of it will be there's a thing that is a really good replacement for such and such an organ or, or whatever else that is a technological thing that keeps the whole system running well but isn't the biological version of that particular system um oh there was a question here about vaccines um What's different in the vaccines? Like, what's the difference in one and another? Uh, I could tell you what I know about that, which is somewhat incomplete. I mean, there are three main vaccines in the US, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are, are mRNA, messenger RNA vaccines. And that was kind of the mechanism I was describing, where 
um, and the the um, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is is based on an adenovirus. Um, the um, okay, the the mRNA vaccines that they all work by basically producing little pieces of virus proteins in your cells so that your cells will sort of expose that virus protein and cause you to mount a kind of practice immune response. And um, the mRNA ones, the way they work is these lipid nanoparticles um, are physical things that have RNA inside them. And they are small enough to kind of slide into uh, your cells. They get into the cytosol, the, the material that's inside the main part of the cell, and they start, they just, they usually when your cell produces proteins, there will be DNA replication in the nucleus of the cell. There will be, um, and then there will be messenger RNA that goes out and starts getting read and producing proteins in the main part of the cell. And what's, what's happening with these, with these vaccines is they are inserting lipid nanoparticles into the main part of the cell. And those lipid nanoparticles break open, they expose the RNA, then your standard cell protein manufacturing apparatus, ribosomes and so on, start up and they say, oh, there's a piece of RNA here. Let me transcribe this piece of RNA and turn it into protein. And that's what they do. They don't, at that point, they don't know that that thing is not a piece of RNA that actually came from the cell nucleus. They're just like, uh, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to replicate this piece of RNA. And um, the, uh, the thing that, um, uh, and that's, that's the same way that a virus works. I mean, a virus has exposed its RNA there and the apparatus of your cell will just start to, um, uh, to, to replicate it. So it's kind of, it's kind of being like a, a fake virus, except that it isn't a whole virus. So it can't actually do the whole full replication of virus, make more virus type thing. It's just whatever RNA got into that particular cell, it will be transcribed in that particular cell. It might be transcribed many times in that particular cell, but it's just in that particular cell. It's exposed on the cell surface. It's attacked by the immune system. I think that particular cell will end up getting killed off. It's kind of the... Um, uh, it's the it's the it's the sacrificial cell or something because it was exposing this this essentially antigen on its surface which causes an immune response. Now, I mean that's all good. Uh, you know, bad things can happen if the lipid nanoparticle winds up in a cell that uh, if, it, if it starts some cascade where you start getting some kind of uh, you know more like an autoimmune response and so on. It's not really understood whether that happens, how much that happens, whether it happens in different organs and so on. It might be the case that if the lipid nanoparticle gets into a particular organ, it will have a different behavior than if it's in just sitting in muscle tissue in your arm or whatever. Those are, those are complicated issues that, that um, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's sort of scattered medical data about at this point. But anyway, that, that's how those vaccines, the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines work that way. And the differences between those vaccines, I think, is that they've picked slightly different sequences, um, slightly different parts of the, um, of the virus uh, RNA sequence to, to uh, produce protein for, um, to be the thing that will be the sort of the recognition thing that will be used to, um, to respond to, the, uh, to, the, to, to produce an immune response. And I think that's um, when the trials of, of um, these vaccines were done, 
they tried out a bunch of different parts of the of the RNA sequence to figure out what was the most effective part of the sequence to expose. And some, some parts of the sequence didn't have much of an effect. Some had some weird bad effects. And the ones that were picked were the ones that seemed to have the best effect. Now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I think, works a different way. It is um, uh, It hitches a ride on an adenovirus, which is a, a type of virus that can infect cells. And that virus, I believe, goes into the cell nucleus and it starts, um, but it, it has on it, it's been kind of a, a, a variant of that virus. The virus itself is, is harmless, but it has on it, sort of piggybacking on it is a piece of viral RNA from the actual uh, COVID virus. Um, it can't be that, it, it can't end up becoming a, a viral replication thing. It's just goes into the cell once, so to speak. And then it again has this mechanism that RNA is produced that causes proteins to start getting generated inside the cells that get exposed, that then have an immune response and so on. And that's, that's, the, uh, that's the mechanism so far, as, so far as I know. And I think that's, that's been the, the very clever thing that's been done for uh, traditional vaccines, as I say, require, well, they require lots of trial and error of different adjuvants and different pieces of protein and so on and so on. Uh, these have been able to be deployed as quickly as they have because of these new technologies. I mean, the lipid nanoparticle technology and RNA vaccine, uh, mRNA vaccine technology was actually developed primarily as a way to deal with cancer, to be able to make a kind of custom vaccine that would be a vaccine that would get your immune system to go attack a particular cancer that you might happen to have. And no doubt the, the use of all this in, uh, in, this, um, uh, uh, in this pandemic uh, will mean that there's great advances that can be made in that kind of immunotherapy for, for cancer. I mean, it, it's also a question which is uh, one that I think people have been interested in is could there be a generic vaccine against uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, common cold and this and that and the other? Could there be some sort of more generic approach? And these mRNA vaccines are, uh, they were actually being developed before this pandemic came along as a possible sort of more generic platform for making a sort of rapid deployment uh, vaccines for lots of different viruses. Okay, well, I think I'm being told that I've run out of time here, but I see um, all sorts of, um, oh boy, all sorts of interesting questions. Um, the, uh, um, well, that means we've got good things to talk about um, next week. Um, all right, well, thanks, thanks for all those questions. And um, I think we should wrap up for now. So uh, bye for now. And uh, I'll be back uh, same time next week. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.